The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Jesus says all kinds of shocking statements throughout the Bible. He makes statements that are hard to believe, statements that upset the status quo, statements that challenge the religious conventions, and statements that on the surface can be very difficult to understand. In fact, if we were to isolate these statements in the scriptures and to, re- and to really look at them, it, it would often lead to us asking questions like, what was Jesus thinking? Like, did Jesus actually think that saying that would help grow the church? Did Jesus actually, like, is Jesus surprised after saying certain things that people wanted him dead? Like, there are statements over and over in, in situations where Jesus will even say things, and everybody around, uh, around Jesus is just, like, looking at each other and like, well, what does that even mean? Like, over and over, the Bible is filled with these statements. And if you and I were to try to say or do the things that Jesus said, right, pe- people would look at us confused Maybe, maybe try to kick us out of the church and say, say well, you, you can't say something like that. And today what I want to do is I want to focus on one particular statement in the book of Matthew. Jesus gives a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you could open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 5. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1503. Now, last week, we actually wrapped up our series on the life of David. And as, as, as Joe shared with us in the, the, the final message of that series, what, we found, what, what he shared was, was this idea that in the life of David and what we can see in our own life is it's often when we are isolated, when we are angry, when we're alone, that the ways of God seem unappealing or irrelevant to our life. And so in the life of David, we actually looked at this situation where David has an opportunity that seems like it could even be from God. He has an opportunity to get revenge on the king. He has an opportunity to, to kill the king and take his place as king. And so the way of God would, would probably be unappealing to him and seemingly irrelevant to the matter at hand. Yet what David chooses to do in that moment is not to get even. He doesn't take advantage of the situation. And so we found that, that in the life of David, David chose to love somebody who was his enemy. And as Joe shared that with us, he took us into this Sermon on the Mount, in this particular section where Jesus teaches, love your enemy, because while this might be unappealing and seemingly irrelevant to us, it is actually the call that, that Jesus has for his followers, a calling that is often shocking and unbelievable for us as we try to do it. And so I want to begin in that same section, starting in verse 43, and then we're going to really hone in and focus in on that final verse in that section. And so I'll begin reading verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that last, that last verse in particular, right, be perfect. I mean, does Jesus really mean it? 
I mean, think about it. Like, if, if you're listening to Jesus give that message, right, there are a lot of difficult things that Jesus says, but then he's capping it all off and says, well, be perfect. Like, well, if I'm a follower of Jesus, well, I'm like, well, great, that's easy. Right? So, and so, so what do we do with that? Does Jesus actually mean be perfect? And so the challenge is when we have a statement like this, the, the, the reason it makes it so shocking is it seems impossible. Like, how are we supposed to accomplish that? And see, often what happens when Jesus makes these shocking statements is people will come to their own conclusions. They will come up with ways to deal with, with the statement that aren't really actually, uh, actually listening to what the statement says. And so with this one in particular, when Jesus says, be perfect, there, there are a couple different problems that, that people have and, and, and responses that they would actually make of this. One of those would be we, we, just, we just believe that Jesus couldn't actually mean it. That Jesus doesn't really mean be perfect. He must mean just try hard. Like Jesus just really, it's, all right, just put in, just do, do your best. That he couldn't mean be perfect. In fact, some commentators will even sit, say that the word perfect isn't the best translation here. That they'll say, well, well the translation really should be be mature or be complete. But, but the, problem, see, the, the commentators who, who would suggest that really miss the point because the problem isn't actually with the word perfect or mature co- or complete. The problem is the bar is actually the heavenly father. And so it's, if it's be perfect, be mature, be complete, if it's like the heavenly father, either way, we can't hit it. Either way, we are falling short. Now, the other problem that, pe- that people will often fall into is, is they don't try to, 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 to kind of diminish the words of Jesus. They, they, don't, they don't try to make be perfect possible. They actually believe that perfection is attainable. So, so they don't try to change it. They don't say, well, Jesus didn't really mean it. They just, they just will read this and say, well, if Jesus said be perfect, he must think that we actually can be. That perfection must be attainable. And so if I work hard enough, if I'm devoted enough, if I'm committed enough, if I can change my life around enough, then eventually I will, I'll hit this point where I'm sinless. Eventually I'll hit this point where, where perfection has arrived. And so both of these will actually cause us to miss the shocking reality of what Jesus says. They'll, 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 they'll make us believe that, that it's up to us or they'll make us believe that what Jesus calls us to is not actually that big a deal. And so I want to unpack these two different problems a little bit. Because as we understand the problem, we'll also begin to understand the reality of what Jesus is actually saying when he says, be perfect. And we'll also understand the shocking reality of the promise that comes in the work of Jesus. And so let's start with the difference between perfect, perfect and good intentions. See, we all understand that that behavior and intentions are not the same thing. This is not a new idea for any of us. We know it intuitively. In fact, if, if it, it, we'll even get upset if somebody has all the right behaviors, but, but we know that there's some other underlying motivation, right? If, if I were to give to somebody and you knew that the only reason I was giving something to them was that I wanted something in return, none of you are going to be impressed by my generosity, like if somebody's asking me for forgiveness and the only reason I forgive them is because of what everybody else is going to think of me if I were to say no, nobody's impressed by my compassion, right? Because that my attitude is self-serving. And so we understand that there's a difference between the behavior and the intentions. Now what's interesting is when it comes to God's law, right, when it comes to the commands, anytime God says do this or don't do this, anytime we look at what is good, what is true, what is right, What we often do is the moment we think it's too hard, we try to lower the bar. 
Or the moment we think that something that God says is just uh, uh, impossible, the moment we think we, we can't do it, what we'll try to do is we'll say, all right, well, that's not really what it means. And so we try to lower the bar because if we lower it enough, sometimes we'll trip over it. Right? Sometimes we'll finally do something right. And so we try to make it more doable. Now, the problem with this particular statement, be perfect, is where it comes. Because if we look at the rest of Jesus' sermon, and we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it, like to, to actually lower the bar with this statement doesn't make any sense. To suggest that Jesus doesn't really mean be perfect, it just doesn't match the rest of the sermon. This is the same sermon where Jesus is talking about the law a lot. He has some bold proclamations about what he wants his followers to live like. And so he says things like, well, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who even lusts after a woman has committed adultery in their own heart. Or or he says, as you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, anyone who's even called a brother a fool is guilty uh, of murdering them. Right, so what Jesus does with these commands, he takes the commands, every, something that everybody kind of agreed with and was good with, and they got the behavior, and Jesus actually says, all right, well, let's raise the bar. Let's make your intentions and behavior all match. He says, you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, how about we turn the other cheek? Or, or you're, you're expected to go one mile with somebody when they ask you to, to, to go with them. How about you go a second mile? Or you get the idea of loving other people. Well, how about you don't just love the people who are like you? How about you love your enemies? See, Jesus doesn't lower the bar of the law. He raises the bar. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is actually raising the bar. And so to be consistent, when Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, the only conclusion that actually makes logical sense is that Jesus is doing the same thing he's done in the rest of the sermon. He's raising the bar. He's saying, he's saying, here is the standard. Here is what you are going for. Here is, is, is what it is. And the, and the standard is perfection. It's the heavenly father. He's not saying, well, just, just try really hard to love your enemies. But if they really, really bug you, then all right, you're fine. Right? He's, not, he's not saying, well, we'll try really hard. Well, just do your best. No, Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying be perfect. And he actually means be perfect. And this is what's significant about that, because when we realize that Jesus actually means be perfect, that he's actually raising the bar, it forces us to deal with the fact that we're not. Because if Jesus doesn't mean perfect, then we don't have to actually deal with the fact that we're not. But if Jesus does mean be perfect, now we have to deal with the problem. Now we have to come face to face with our own inadequacies. Now we have to come face to face with the fact that we don't measure up to the perfection of the Heavenly Father. Now, the other problem that happens in this text is this idea that perfection is possible. That if Jesus suggests it, then we probably can do it. Which can be a bit challenging when we look at it. Because what can begin to happen is we believe that we can actually get close enough to perfection. If you want an example of what that looks like in the scriptures, you can look at the religious people in Jesus' day. right? The Pharisees, like over and over, have this driving perfectionism. They want to be better. They want to do more. In fact, the Apostle Paul, even talking about his own religious perfection, in the book of Philippians would call himself blameless. 
All right, how close to perfect do you have to get to consider yourself blameless? Like he's talking to a bunch of other religious people and said, all right, I know you're striving after perfection too, so let me tell you, I've done it. And he's doing that in Philippians actually all in order to tell him that, all right, the perfectionism that you're after, it's missing the point that there's something greater than all of that. Because you might be striving for perfection, but you are missing the point. See, in Jesus' day, perfection was attainable in, many of, in the eyes of many of the religious people. It may, and maybe it wasn't sinlessness, but it was at least, they believed they could at least be good enough that they'd appear perfect to everyone else. See, there's an important difference between perfect and perfectionism. See, perfectionism is this driving desire to look perfect to act perfect, to work perfectly, to behave perfectly, to be devoted enough, to be good enough. But I don't know if you've ever noticed this, because many of you probably know a perfectionist in your life. The only reason a perfectionist ever becomes a perfectionist is because of this underlying awareness that there's something that's not good enough. Or that's the only reason you actually become a perfectionist. You don't become a perfectionist because you're perfect. You become a perfectionist because you're not. And so you, you believe that if you can work hard enough, if you can do enough, that you can, that you can push those things far underneath the surface. And so there's this desire that maybe if I work hard enough, I don't have to deal with my own inadequacies. I don't have to deal with the fact that, that, that I might fail. I don't have to deal with what people might say. I don't have to deal with my own sin and the fact that I've broken things, that I've broken relationships, that I've hurt the heart of God. I don't have to deal with those things if I can strive for perfection. There's a researcher by the name of Brene Brown who has this incredible statement that she made in an interview about perfectionism, and I want to share that with you. Now, I want to give you a peek behind the curtain a little bit, because the reason that I want to share this with you um, is not because what she says is more valuable than what the Bible says, because honestly, we could just stick to the Bible, and it doesn't matter what she says. Um, But what I also realize is that we come in here from a variety of different perspectives, right? Some of us love the Bible, love Jesus. Others of us might be skeptical of it. In fact, if you are a guest with us, you might not be sure about how you feel about the whole church thing, the whole God thing, the whole religion thing, but every now and then, there'll they'll, they'll be somebody who's coming from a secular, a, a, a very non-religious perspective. And they'll just, just so happen to say something that thousands of years ago was already said. And so I, I want to point this out because, because maybe you are skeptical of the Bible. Um, and so maybe, maybe looking at this particular quote, we'll be like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And then, and then what we're going to do is we're going to say, well, look at Jesus is saying the same thing. And so here's, what, here's the way Brene Brown said, said this. She said, when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun, and fear is the annoying backseat driver. All right, so, so, so think about it. When, when perfectionism is driving, there's this underlying sense of I need to do enough, be enough, work enough. I need things to look a certain way. I need my obedience to, to hit a certain level. I need my family, my home, my faith to reach a certain level. And the reason all of that is happening is because this underlying sense of shame or this fear, this, this possibility that I might fail or this, this sense of what might people say or what would happen if people knew the real me. What would happen if people knew what I struggled with? What would happen if people knew what I thought? There's a fear of failure. There's, there's a possibility of getting blamed for the mess. 
And so I know that, well, if I can work hard enough, I can do something to try to minimize the possibility of dealing with that pain. See, perfectionism is our self-made strategy to protect ourselves. We believe that's going to keep us safe. Brene Brown actually calls it a 20-ton shield. Right? We carry it around believing it's going to protect us from all the hurt, but it weighs us down. And it doesn't actually protect us. The only thing that happens with that shield is it hides. It hides the insecurity. It hides the struggle. It hides the failure. It hides the sin. It doesn't help. And so our solution, for some of us, that's not our struggle. For some of us, we're just saying, well, all right, well, let's lower the bar. But for others of us, we're like, well, maybe if I can work hard enough that this, this perfectionism will protect me. But it doesn't. It just hides the problem. Now the scriptures describe a shield as well. That's not perfectionism. In fact, the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul, who, who again would claim about his own obedience that he was near perfect, and he would write uh, about, about our own faith. He says, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. So do you want to know how the devil will attack you when the day of evil comes? He's got three weapons of choice. Guilt, shame, and fear. And I know that at times those will drive us to Christ. But the way that the devil will use those is he will try to convince you to believe that your sin has put you outside the grace of God. That, that, you, that you, the thing that you're guilty of, that it is beyond redeemable. That there is no hope left. That that is outside of the grace of God. That God isn't big enough to fix that problem. He, he will pile on the shame. You'll know that you're forgiven, but you'll keep hearing it over and over in your head. This is who you are. This is what you've done. There's no changing that. There's no coming back from that. He'll try to drive into the fear. It's like, God, God is not going to help you with this. This situation, it's just too big. But Paul says, put on the full armor of God because there is something that will protect us. In the shield that we have that protects us, the shield that we have isn't a 20-ton shield. It's a light shield. Paul describes it as the shield of faith because faith protects us. Faith believes that that shame that rides shotgun, that it doesn't get the last word. That, that shame that keeps remi- reminding you, here's who you are, that faith clings to a promise that you are not what you've done, that you are a child of God, that you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, that, that death and resurrection has sealed it, and nothing, no public shaming, no private shaming, none of the shame that you hear will define who you are. Faith clings to clings to. The promise that that thing that you're afraid of, that thing that you think is going to wreck everything, faith clings to the fact that God is bigger. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then whatever you're afraid of can't stop Jesus. Because if death couldn't stop Jesus, then whatever whatever sickness, whatever evil, whatever brokenness happens in this world, it is not bigger than Jesus because Jesus already defeated death. So nothing can stop him. And faith clings to 
The promise that that thing that we're guilty of, that it is never beyond the redemption of Jesus. That there is no sin that's too big for the grace of God. That he will never stop loving. Faith protects us because it clings to perfect, not to perfectionism. Because what happens by faith is our faith clings to the perfection of Jesus, not to our own perfection. If it's about our own perfection, we need to either make the law easier so that maybe we can finally do it sometimes, or we need to believe that perfection is attainable. But if Jesus is our perfection, we simply cling to the promise that Jesus is what we can't be, that Jesus makes us what we could never be. And so when we read this text, be perfect, we can read it with two important truths in mind. One, perfect is the impossible command. Jesus meant it. He actually meant be perfect. And it is impossible. And just like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he gave these commands that were raising the bar. Because what he wants for his followers is something better, is something greater. He wants them to strive after it. He wants them to love. He wants them to give. He wants them to be faithful. He wants what their love to look like, to look nothing like the world around them. I mean, think about this idea of loving your enemies. Right? We've, maybe, maybe you've heard it before. But, but do you get how unheard of that idea is? Like loving your equals, that's normal. Right, loving somebody who is like you, right, that's an easy thing. That's a human thing. Family lo- loves family. Neighbors can love neighbors. Friends love friends. That's easy. That's no big deal. What's, what's even not surprising is even this idea of loving the less fortunate. Now, it's a beautiful thing. It's an important thing that we can see, right, love and compassion, but it's not really unheard of to love those who suffer, to love those who are poor, who are sick, who failed, who are alone. It's a compassionate and beautiful thing, but it's, but it's not a foreign idea. If we were to push it a step further, now what's a little bit more rare in our world would be this idea of loving the more fortunate. Now that would be a bit surprising, right? For you to fail and love somebody who succeeds or for you to rejoice without envy for somebody else who's rejoicing, or to be poor and love the rich, or to love somebody who doesn't look like you but's more successful than you. Now, that would be rare. But Jesus goes even beyond that when he says, love your enemy. Because, see, love for the enemy, love for the one who doesn't love you, Love for the one who mocks you, who threatens you, who inflicts pain. To be the tortured and love the tortured, that's a love that doesn't come from this world. That's a love that can't be explained by humanity. It's a different kind of love. It's a love that we can't have on our own. It's a love that can only be explained by the love of God. And this is important because that kind of love the one place where we see that kind of love enacted is in Jesus. Because perfect is not only the impossible command, but perfect is the unbelievable promise. That love that Jesus calls us to, he demonstrates it. In Romans chapter 5, Paul actually writes about the enemy, and he says, while we were God's enemies... 
while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? In other words, that love, that love for an enemy, that love that we're talking about, that love that can't be seen in this world, that love that we can't just generate for ourselves, that love is the love that Jesus has for us. We were the enemies. We mocked. We threatened. We inflicted pain on Jesus by our active rebellion. But the death and resurrection of Jesus was still for us. So that command, be perfect, It's an impossible command, but it's also a promise that Jesus is perfect because we're not. Growing up, there was a way that certain commands would be shared in our house. See, anytime you hear a command in the the Bible, you can read it, right? Do this, don't do this. The same thing true growing up. Your parents will often, uh, often, would often share with you, do this, don't do this. Well, at times, there'd be some commands that would be shared in our house that would come across a little bit differently. And it wouldn't just be do this or don't do this, but it would actually be Grunewald's do this. It'd be Grunewald's work hard. Grunewald's don't quit. Now, it's still a command, right? I still have a choice. Am I going to listen? Am I going to do it? Am I going to not do it? But it was a command that was connected to something bigger than myself. It was a command tied to what was true about me. A command that was tied to who I am. In other words, it was because of who you are, this is what you're going to do. Because because you're a part of the family, here's what it looks like to be a part of the family. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't, but the reality is that that command was tied to to my identity. When Jesus says be perfect, it's not just do this, but it's also you will be perfect. Because that's what it means to be a part of the family. You will love your enemy. And it's because of who you are in Christ. Because as a result of being a child of God, you are made perfect. As a result of the perfection of Jesus, this unbelievable promise is that you are made perfect. And you're not without sin. You won't be without sin until until eternity. But as a result of being made perfect, as a result of being made a child of God, Jesus says, here's what it's going to look like. See, it's an impossible command, but it's an unbelievable promise. A promise of who you are and how God sees you because of the perfection of Christ. As we close our time together, what I want to do is I want to give us an opportunity to confess, to pray, to go before God and ask that God would stir our heart, would remind us of our own imperfection. Remind us of the ways that we have failed, of the ways that we have sinned, the ways that we fall short. That God would remind us where we have tried to lower the bar. That God would show us where we have trusted in our own perfection instead of the perfection of Jesus. And so we are going to take a time to confess, to go before God with those, knowing that the response of Jesus is with his own perfection. And we'll have an opportunity then to come forward to receive from Jesus this unbelievable promise. That as you come forward to receive, it's not because of your hard work, it's not because of your perfection, it's because of his. 
because of his perfection. He gives to you his body and his blood that perfectly defeats any guilt that might want to keep you in your seat, any shame, and any fear that would hold you back from the love of God. So let's take a moment to to go before God and confess these things. Jesus, you are incredible and you say some shocking things, but we thank you for those things. We thank you for the statements that would force us to deal with the reality. The reality of who we are because of sin, but also the reality of who you are and what you give to us. And so, Jesus, we fail in so many different ways that we don't love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We don't love our neighbors the way you call us to. We don't love our enemies the way you command. Sometimes we respond to that by trying to make it easier, by trying to just say, well, we've tried our best. Other times we believe that if we can work hard enough that we, can, we don't have to deal with the problem. Jesus, help us deal with the problem. Help us come face to face with the reality of our own sin. And hear us in these moments as we quietly confess to you where we have fallen short. promise of Jesus is that he is perfect because you're not. And he says to each and every one of us here today that your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.